Hello. My name is Richard Wright, and for 13 more days, I'm Editor-in-Chief of the British Journal of Sociology. It's my pleasure to welcome you to the 2012 BJS Lecture and to the awarding of the journal's second BJS Prize. Before awarding the BJS Prize and introducing tonight's lecture and speakers, I'd like to remind you to put your mobile phones on silent to avoid any un unanticipated interruptions, please. This is especially important because the proceedings are being recorded, and it's hoped, all being well, that a podcast of the event will be, be, be made available online. Now let me turn first to the awarding of the BGS Prize. The winner of this year's prize is Professor Anthony King for his article, The Afghan War in Postmodern Memory, Commemoration in the Dead of Helmand. There are many worthy containers for the 2012 prize, but Professor King's piece stood out for its timeliness, superb writing, and most of all for the clarity and power of its argument, which centers on recent transformations in the ways in which dead soldiers are remembered and commemorated. No short summary could do justice to this thoughtful and provocative article. So I urge all of you who haven't already done so to read it for yourselves. It really is sociology at its very best, and so it's my honor to present the uh, BGS Prize to Professor Anthony King. Well, thanks very much, and I'd just like to thank uh, Richard and the editors of the journal and, of course, Jackie Gorton. Uh, and I'd just make one small dedication. The article was obviously about uh, uh, British soldiers who've been killed in Helmand, but I would like to dedicate the award to, or, to um, the many thousands of uh, civilians, innocent Afghan civilians who've been killed in 30 years of conflict. And I hope uh, that as we move towards Western withdrawal, a peaceful settlement might be made of this terrible war that's been going on for far too long. Thanks very much. And that brings us to the 2012 BJS lecture. Tonight's lecture will be delivered by Todd Gitlin, who is professor of both communications and sociology at Columbia University. Professor Gitlin has written widely and influentially in academia and well beyond academia. Uh, he's published uh, over a dozen books, several novels, and, and, and also a book of poetry. His newest book is Occupy Nation, The Roots, the Spirit, and the Promise of Occupy Wall Street, and will be speaking to Occupy's predicament tonight. The respondent for tonight's lecture, Craig Calhoun, here in this auditorium, really does need no introduction because he's the new director of the London School of Economics. Um, and of course, along with Professor Gitlin, is one of the world's best-known sociologists. It promises to be a very stimulating evening. The evening will proceed roughly as follows. Professor Gitlin will speak for approximately 45 minutes followed by a 20 to 25-minute response by Professor Calhoun. Professor Gitlin then will have five or so minutes to reply, leaving time, I hope, for two or three questions from the audience afterwards. The lecture will be followed by an informal reception, which uh, you're all invited to. I'm not supposed to tell you where it is until the end of the lecture, but just in case I forget, it's just right outside the hall, right out there. <laughs> so you're going to have no trouble finding it at all. It'll be right there. They're always, they're always very nice. Um, so there we go. And with that, it's my great privilege to introduce Professor Todd Gitlin. It's a great honor and uh, more 
to be here in this place, which has so many resonances for me and for the world. I'm very happy to occupy this podium. <laughs> One Occupy organizer in New York, a man named Shen Tung, began his political life in Beijing in 1989 as a leader of the students who occupied Tiananmen Square until they were dispersed by troops, tanks, rifles, and a bloodbath. He was one of the leaders able to flee to the U.S., where he earned advanced degrees, and in the storybook way of immigrant successes, started a software company with an office near Wall Street, where, in a departure from the storybook, last fall, he observed a new social fact right down the street and felt the stirrings of what Raymond Williams would have called a new structure of feeling. And he proceeded to devote himself for the better part of a year to Occupy Wall Street. There are two crises for a movement, he said to me. One is to be massacred. The other is to succeed. The massacre part is easy to understand. What did he mean by succeed? Why does it make sense to speak of the Occupy movement as a qualified success. Last September, Occupy Wall Street was one of those upheavals that burst out of nowhere, like the volcano that famously erupted from a farmer's cornfield in Mexico in 1943 and suddenly transformed the landscape. Except that in this case, the volcano triggered hundreds more. After it arrived, the eruption seemed inevitable for the ground had been rumbling for weeks. There were, uh, as some of us say, structural preconditions. Those grand social features so conspicuous in retrospect, so indecipherable in prospect. The molten undermass was there for years, but where was the eruption? But before the ground trembled, no one, not the participants who camped out in Zuccotti Park, not the pundits or politicians or the rest of the political class saw the eruption coming. When it arrived, a host of journalists and pundits, whether or not they approved of the politics of plutocracy, pronounced it peculiar, incomprehensible, dangerous, evanescent, and ineffectual, if not revolting, sometimes more than one of those at the same time. What erupted in Zuccotti Park and spilled across the United States and elsewhere last fall was, in truth, a movement's beginning, or the beginning of the beginning, as one placard put it, acknowledging or wishing, at least, that a campaign to reverse the accretion of plutocratic power over the previous decades must endure a matter of years. It was spontaneous, but there were rumblings during the preceding months. It was organized, but not in any obvious way. And the organizers had tried to ignite previous incarnations and failed. Here's one, for example. Oop, not that one. This one. This is a uh, poster that went up in uh, late July. Um, this time, to change metaphors, the flame caught. Many, if not most, of the prime mooners, movers in Occupy, the, what I think of as the inner movement, were anarchists and democratic radicals, desirous of reorganizing social decisions around directly democratic or horizontal assemblies. But the movement caught and burned 
not only because of the spunk and audacity, inventiveness of the young insurgents, but because there was ample tinder, indignation over the consequential but obscured fact that America's leading institutions had, for more than three decades, since the end of cheap oil in the early 1970s and then amid growing competition from abroad and the beginning of wholesale deregulation, for more than three decades, the concentrated energies of American capital had safeguarded the heavily lionized financiers while heightening a great divergence, as it's been called, of wealth and leaving the living conditions of the great majority of the population to stagnate or worse, thus breaking the implied contract that had been wrestled out of the convulsions and reforms of the previous four decades, namely that a collective bargain among capital, labor, and the state would keep inequality in check. It was easily established that the proverbial 99%, most of whom considered themselves in the United States middle class, did not benefit from the economic growth of these decades. Here are some, here's one way of diagramming uh, what happened to the share of, welco- of, of, of income rather, between 1920 and 2010. And if we were to look at wealth, uh, we would find something even more radical. The w- share of the of total wealth by the top 1% is something of the order of 40%. However famously optimistic they once were, Americans were now in the main persuaded that the world was not going their way. And some were ready to understand the situation as more than a regrettable economic condition, but as a moral crisis. Here are a couple of other illustrations In 2010, the Walton family of the Walmart's uh, wealth is uh, as large as the bottom 48.8 million uh, families in the wealth distribution in the United States. And here's uh, a suggestion of the wealth of the richest 400, uh, equivalent to that of the entire bottom 50%. So, a moral crisis. This movement could not have erupted and grown were there not passionate indignation everywhere at the moral default of the society's chief institutions. The inner and outer movement alike could agree that the political class was largely in hoc to the wealthy, partly in the case of the Democrats, almost wholly in the case of the Republicans. As Robert Rubin and Alan Greenspan had been elevated into the royal couple of bipartisan deregulatory Washington. Culture did not lag behind. If you'll recall Reagan-era Dallas and dynasty and lifestyles of the rich and famous. As bankers lavished conspicuously inscribed gift buildings and sanctuaries upon the universities, the hospitals, museums, and worshipful palaces of their choice, and were primped, flattered, solicited for benison and lionized, there was an ideological and moral vacuum to be filled. It was evident that the churches were inert, speaking of Jesus but quietly, with the line about the rich man and the eye of the needle written in invisible ink, and that the universities and colleges had their palms up, contributing their own measure to the exaltation of wealth, for the main note struck in business schools and economics departments not least the one on my own campus, whose uh, dean you may know was George Bush's chief economic advisor and is now Mitt Romney's chief economic advisor. 
the main note struck in business schools and economics departments was that markets were self-regulating. And even now, unfazed by this years-long global experiment in financial bloat and deregulation and the exports of worthless paper, much of the economics profession continues to emphasize the self-regulating magic of markets, as certified, for example, by the Ayn Rand disciple, who was the Republican Party's nominee for vice president in my country. So there arrived an Occupy movement to fill an ideological as well as a public territorial space. The rise of Occupy Wall Street duly impressed the opposition. The House Republican leader, Eric Cantor, quickly denounced what he called the mobs of Zuccotti Park. And then, and here was the remarkable part, then he clammed up, didn't repeat it, refusing to condemn a popular cause, he was eventually advised, being the better part of politics. During the Republican primaries, former Speaker Newt Gingrich, in need of a campaign relaunch, was the beneficiary of a $10 million grant from the gambling tycoon Sheldon Adelson and his wife, which went in part to cast Mitt Romney as a predator, a vulture capitalist, their words, a theme that proved unhelpful to Gingrich, but very helpful to the Obama campaign since it succeeded in labeling Romney as the poster boy of the 1% before he'd had a chance to label himself. Meanwhile, for their part, by and large, Democrats handled the movement gingerly for fear that any more intense expressions of friendliness might tar them with unruly brushes. But unions and the multi-million membership organization Move On and other such, only too aware that they had been treading water for years, found themselves lending material support to the Occupy movement, especially pouring people into the larger demonstrations. And still, the larger movement's hostility to electoral politics, which was severe and remains so, and to big hierarchical organizations, even if they are membership organizations, did not accord with the weakened union's idea of how to invest their energies during a presidential campaign year. The inner core of the movement was phobic about the risk of being co-opted. It didn't want different policies. It wanted, it actually wanted to be a different way of life. At the core of Occupy was an identity, however absurd it appeared to the outside. It prided itself on a famously horizontal style, a will toward a cooperative commonwealth, a repertory of rituals, and, and of playful, sometimes confrontational action. What floated this style? Why was this not immediately erased from public consciousness? This was, believe it or not, the first American social movement, at least in the modern era of public opinion polling, to begin with the majority of, with, a, with the benefit of majority support for its main thrust. The industrial union surge of the 1930s, and this is the first one for which we have public opinion polling, did not. Public opinion was ambivalent. Here's a uh, poll that says something about the atmosphere in which the civil rights movement, which in today's collective memory is something that everybody in America besides George Wallace supported. 
Here's a survey from 1960. In which direction do you believe the next administration should go on the question of civil rights? Should they keep on pressing for further civil rights legislation? Proceed slowly until we have worked out the problems resulted from laws already passed? Or hold back from any further? You'll see that 59% chose the middle path. Mind you, this was two months before the election, the Kennedy-Nixon election, four years before the passing of the Civil Rights Act, and five years before the passing of the Voting Rights Act, which is still so effective as to encounter a vast array of, of obstacles and attempts at virtual repeal today. So this was the climate at the time in 1960. The movement against the Vietnam War began at a time when 60 to 80 percent, depending on how the question was asked, of Americans approved of the war. The women's movement uh, began uh, its upsurge at a time when most Americans thought that women should not be paid equally to men for the same work. In some parts of America, that's still controversial. Uh, the gay movement, you could imagine what public opinion was about the existence of gay people, let alone rights. But recently and consistently over the last year plus, American supermajorities, considerably more than 50%, agree that the power of money in politics needs to be curbed, that taxes should be more progressive, that the too-big-to-fail banks were a pyramid of negligence and self-dealing, if not criminality, acting irresponsibly and with impunity to plunge the world into financial crisis, and that the government has, by and large, been their handmaiden. The public did not like all of Occupy's tactics or its ragamuffin image. And indeed, levels of support for the movement plunged after the fall of 2011, as they had done earlier for the Tea Party. But the Occupy movement's terminology, especially 1% and 99%, entered into popular lore so readily because it summed up, however crudely, the sense that the wielders of power are at once arrogant, self-dealing, incompetent, and incapable of remedying the damage they have wrought, and that their dominance constitutes a moral disgrace that can be only addressed by a moral awakening. As one Occupy slogan had it, the system's not broken, it's fixed. So Occupy Wall Street was jump-started by a radical core, roughly anarchist, horizontalist in the new lingo, veterans of left-wing campaigns of various sorts running back to the anti-globalization movement of 1999 and sometimes earlier. Their master stroke was to devise a form of action, occupation, that parlayed electronic networks into the forming of face-to-face community in public places as earlier in the year in Tahrir Square and in Madrid's Puerta del Sol. The core created an inner movement which had a definable thrust, stop plutocracy, within an intense existential affirmation of its communal self, an insistence that what it stood for was the virtue of encampment itself, assembly as a way of life, a form of being, The political edge of it, while not articulated in the form of specific demands, was still, it felt to me from the beginning, plain in slogans like, we are the 99%, 
and banks got bailed out, we got sold out. These resonated with a larger public that was gravely disillusioned with political economic establishments widely seen as having superintended the economic breakdown of 2008 and having thrived with ease. Restiveness in the face of political stagnation had in fact made an appearance three years earlier in the form, uh, oddly enough, of that part of the base of the Obama campaign which viewed him as a virtual savior. But with Obama in the White House, that proto-Obama movement had gone into early retirement, what with Obama's own lack of interest in sustaining it and the widespread disinclination of the activists in his base to remain publicly clamorous and engaged. Now, with the country awash in debt and unemployment, Wall Street had become an enemy both symbolic and concrete, a system and a moral abomination. The emotional tenor of Occupy Wall Street, a structure of feeling with roots in that earlier movement against globalization, combined hope, earnestness, spunk, and playful nonviolence. Here are some images that, to me, suggest some of the elements here. This was the sit-down on the Brooklyn Bridge on October 1st of last year. This was from a demonstration uh, a few days later. very commonly uh, expressed sentiment. And uh, this one suggesting that what was at work here, I think importantly suggesting that what was at work here was not simply the expression of outrage, but also of hope. With the speed of tectonic plates long stuck and now suddenly unlocked, with galvanizing images in circulation via the movement's own media, and with the at least implicit support of institutions, as I said, including unions and elements of the Democratic Party, Occupy Wall Street and its spinoffs at the popular level transformed political culture. They did so by infusing 18th century constitutional principle with 21st century methods, social media, text messages, and the like, for summoning an assembly Around kitchen tables and on late-night comedy shows, the Occupy movement gained currency. This was something apparently new under the sun. It was in any event a story, and it floated to the top of the detritus of newsworthy sensations borne along on the torrential gush of media. It outlasted the media's misrecognitions, the framing of its diffuseness as the front and center fact about it, as a failed organization or a failed platform or a poor excuse for a political party. These were, in effect, the objectives arrayed in the conventional media framing. It could could only be seen by those institutions as, uh, it could only be seen as something other than what it was, namely a social movement. And in, in, in its uh, rise to prominence, the movement had to thank its own theatrical vigor, along with no small assist from brutal and clumsy police straight out of central casting's villain roles, playing Bull Connor to Martin Luther King, who knew, by the way, exactly what he was doing in Birmingham, Alabama, when he chose that police chief with his police dogs and his fire hoses as the most uh, conspicuous antagonist. 
Some of Occupy's antagonists were cast in that role too, like the police who arrested 700 people, who were, in fact, some of them half courting arrest on the Brooklyn Bridge on October 1st of last year. But Occupy also had the benefit of unwitting volunteers from the ranks of the authorities. Here is, if I can make this work, one of the more renowned illustrations. This one, which you may recall. Oops. I knew I couldn't get through this without. California Davis. Thank you. So Occupy poured forth as a social amalgam with enemies like this for friends, a sort of polyform, polychromatic organism that crystallized public opinion, having captured for the moment that indispensable commodity of contemporary culture, attention. Within short order, the household lexicon of Americans changed. 
The statistics of national debt, which had been harped upon for decades, retreated into the background. And what came into focus instead was the Gini coefficient of wealth inequality. As a focus of collective imagination, Occupy quickly caught up with the Tea Party, which had erupted in 2009 in local uprisings fueled by right-wing media and money and Washington-based organization, converging on the conviction that the government was the root of all evil. Even as the Tea Party had become the beating heart of the Republican Party, Occupy, disdainful of electoral politics, succeeded in targeting a small, corrupt, self-dealing, overprivileged minority widely viewed as having damaged the common good by, while exploiting deregulation and corrupt politics to get away with financial murder. The movement defined plutocratic power, Wall Street, as the adversary, not big government except insofar as it was a facilitator. And so, for a while, it wrested the initiative from the Tea Party. In its first two months, adroitly using the theater of assembly and civil disobedience, it garnered popular sympathy. Camping out cheek to jowl with Wall Street, using online networks to build up face-to-face communities, spaces to meet, argue, eat, take shelter, and so on, learn, refuse to learn, it won points by confronting corrupt adversaries in these whimsical and inventive ways. It brought hardcore activists, anarchists, revolutionaries, and drifters, homeless people, foreclosed and indebted people, desperate people, and reformers of many stripes together. These were people who wanted a new start, a society that had seceded or would secede or some, somehow a society of their own. They wanted it, and they half believed they were actually producing it on the spot. When the police went for pepper spray and mass arrests, and these pictures flew around the world through the movement's own media now, those cell cameras that captured the arrest, the pepper spraying on, West, on 12th Street in New York, and then often enough into the mainstream, and support continued to mushroom. Caught off guard, the city administrations dithered for a time, and then they hooked up, consulted in their common fortification, and responded with a volatile mixture of toleration and brutality, including mass arrests, and eventually, within a couple of months, had swept the encampments away, never mind what an ancient document once referred to as the right of the people peaceably to assemble to petition the government for redress of grievances. There's much to say about what the Occupy Corps achieved and what they didn't achieve, I'm coming to some of that. But first, before I move on, I want to show you a sampling of photos that a photographer named Victoria Schultz took in and around Zuccotti Park during the early months, uh, some of which are in my book, and I think they convey... Uh-oh. Oh, I have to go back there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think they uh, do a good deal to convey what this thing looked like. Some people complained that the place was very dirty. The lady on top is testimony to the fact that it was actually rather well scrubbed. This uh, bicycle was operating a, uh, a generator to keep uh, one of the tent operations going.
The movement's activist core, it num- numbered and still numbers perhaps a few tens of thousands of activists nationwide. By inspection, though not good data, these were, again, by inspection, largely young people, largely disembedded from social institutions. This number is very likely commensurate with the number of civil rights activists who devoted themselves to civil disobedience and mobilized their larger networks and circles and were beaten and murdered during the peak civil rights years of 1955 to 65. Since Occupy's sites were closed down last November and December, the core have struggled with mixed results to contain their divergences. They have fought bitterly over whether to be more explicit than they were before about their nonviolence or whether, on the other hand, to affirm that a diversity of tactics is legitimate. They have fought over their majority whiteness and over the place of women and transgendered people and the homeless and the disruptive. All the factions pay lip service, at least, to the idea of organizing in the community, but there are not so many enduring networks of such organizers, and they are largely untrained. In many of the working groups that came about through the Zakati Park encampment, entropy now prevails. As some new recruits pile in, uh, older ones burn out. The core movement devotes proportionally more energy now tending to its own, bailing them out, defending them in court, sustaining their morale, feeding them. The care and feeding of infrastructure outweighs the building of exostructure, a sustaining network of organizers. The Occupy movement loomed much larger in numbers and influence because on special occasions, like the one where the woman was holding the sign about Texas persons and execution, on special occasions it was able to gather hundreds of thousands of people, possibly low millions in ensemble, in grand mobilizations. So another way to put it was that Occupy was the core of a larger or perhaps a different or evolving movement, which some people called a 99% movement, whose political expectations were more concrete and more contained than revolution in behalf of an anarcho-syndicalist vision of a society governed by directly democratic assemblies. The movement was famously unwilling to make specific demands, to agree on a simple charter. But the thrust, if the whole amalgam of longings and fears could be translated, was overall clear. Banks got bailed out, we got sold out. We are the 99%. Beneath surface appearances, you did not have to be a cryptographer to discern what this movement was about. It wanted all all sorts of things. But there was an intersection, a crosshatch, a a, a redress of the gross imbalance of wealth. The Occupy camps were also revolutionary in an American sense. That is, they restated primordial revolutionary impulses. When I say primordial, I mean that they descended from the 18th century Enlightenment impulse, which elevated public assembly to a high place, which is why in the U.S. we have a First Amendment that doesn't just address freedom of religion and speech and the press, but explicitly specifies the right of the people peaceably to assemble to petition the government for redress of grievances. 
This is why an even more explicit terminology justifying assembly as a core principle of the republic appears in so many state constitutions. Beginning with Pens- well, this is the this is what ended up in the uh, this is what ended up in the Constitution. This is the one that first appeared in Pennsylvania's Constitution of 1776, um, and the part about the common good appears in most of the state constitutions uh, that I've examined so far. This part is taken very unseriously, by the way, in either jurisprudence or scholarship. The assembly, in the language of the time, conveys something substantially more than the sum of a lot of freedom of speech. Assembly conveys here um, that public space is the property of the people, not the government. And the idea of consulting upon the common good, affirmed here, has been declared by the political elite of the United States to be a radical uh, divergence from good order, as in a way it is, because it goes to the heart of the democratic idea that government of, by, and for the people requires that the people speak with one another in their fashion, not just bringing their separate interests to a common space, but actually having the discussion in the course of which they become the people. It might be utopian, indulging in fantasies of a moneyless society, or it might be dithering or meandering or highly disruptible, and by any efficiency measure, grossly inefficient and off-putting, but that is something sanctified in the language of the late 18th century. As you will have noticed, though, not so many Americans are anarchists, radicals, revolutionaries, or professional drummers, or street puppeteers. There are not so many here and now revolutionaries. The much greater numbers of people who marched with Occupy on its days of maximum pageantry, up to 30,000 or so in New York, for example, were for the most part middle-class people, union members, progressive of the various stripes, not so photogenic, not outre, far more numerous and sophisticated. I want to underscore that it was the combination of the verve of the inner movement and the outer movement's numbers showing up on special occasions that remade the political landscape. Even as the core of the movement heatedly from the beginning objected to electoral politics during an election year. As long as the encampments and their epiphany moments lasted, the outer movement was willing to live with the inner movement's participatory disorder and and, uh, and radicalism of style. It would turn out when invited in public and play its part. But when the central rallying places were dispersed, most respectable citizens peeled away from the Occupy Corps. And then it was that centrifugal motion prevailed. All the fissures of politics and style deepened. Some activists got into a go-for-broke mood with no small assistance from intransigent authorities for it became routine for demonstrators to be penned up, you saw those plastic wrappings, in so-called free speech areas as the police became specialists in intimidation and deployed noxious chemicals and rolled out tanks and deployed elaborate surveillance and dashed into crowds to arrest individuals they'd singled out, 
Shows of force in turn fueled disruptive tactics. A few riots started. No matter who threw the first stone or smashed the first window in the popular mind, collisions tended to play as the fault of the protest. The the encampments did not always show that, to use their slogan, another world is possible, except perhaps a more unsettling world, a world less congenial and more dangerous. On the part of the outer movement, there arrived repulsion, repulsion from drug use, from uh, from, uh, boisterousness, from black bloc provocations, so-called, from militants provoking police, from unruly rejections of any authority, including the movement's own. And there was also, for the outer movement, predictably, in a campaign year, a rush toward election campaign work. After the the American autumn, there would be two more large mobilizations in this calendar year, one on May 1st and on the uh, second on the anniversary date of September uh, 17th. But in public estimate, the movement crashed. In an August survey, for example, 18% said they identified with the Occupy or We Are the 99% movement, half of them identifying strongly. Another 27% said they identified a little for a total leaning in favor of 45% as against 48% who did not identify at all. Comparisons with the Tea Party now started to come up mixed. In one August poll, the Tea Party claimed 24% support as against 18% for Occupy. In another, about one-third of those who expressed an opinion said they looked favorably on the Tea Party as opposed to two-thirds unfavorably. Occupy and its penumbra, the outer movement, had no love lost for a deregulating government. But their chief nemesis was a savage capitalism that had brought the global economy to its knees by building castles in the air with counterfeit paper. The financial system, of course, did not buckle, but it did here and there budge. As a result of these activities, some giant banks rolled back some fees, some renegotiated mortgages and reversed some foreclosures. Citigroup shareholders voted, albeit non-bindingly, at their shareholder meeting last year to recommend against a $14.9 million payout to their CEO, who I must add is, or at least was last I looked, a trustee of my home institution. He did resign a few days ago, you may have noticed, though perhaps for other reasons. Some public officials declared their commitment to a certain level of public financing of electoral campaigns or to a special millionaire's tax. So whether the movement will have the resilience and focus to sustain a political campaign um, to bind them is unclear. And meanwhile, capital for its part rolled on unfazed. Absent an extended strategy or enduring experienced networks or a stabilizing organizational structure to put it into effect, Occupy cannot parlay small victories into action for long-term potential. Predictions are cheap, but it might be worthwhile to try sketching prospects. Because so much economic damage continues, and because Occupy's outlook meets with public approval insofar as it can be understood as a set of reform propositions, there might emerge a long-lasting full-service movement, a 99% movement, 
that makes room for a broad range of participants, not just those who hunger for the year zero of participatory democracy or those who think that voting constitutes the entirety of their political work. Both radicals and reformers would have to concentrate on winning over reinforcements. Beginnings, however joyous, don't sustain the momentum that movements need if they are to leave, lead, leave big imprints. Occupy changed the political landscape, but it can't build a home there. That's its predicament. What it built in a burst of social entrepreneurship was camps, useful for time, inspired, inspiring, and self-limited. The camps animated just about all the anarchists and full-time radicals in America. The camps inserted the movement into the public topography. This was a substantial achievement, but not nearly enough to transform the country and address the moral crisis. If there is to be a next phase, then, it will not come by clamoring for Occupy 1.0 to become something it isn't and doesn't want to be. A next phase would have to build on the platform created by Occupy, not try to restore it. It requires a hard-headed appraisal of what's been accomplished and what hasn't. Occupy 2.0, if there is to be one, requires reconfiguration. It would have to be powered by people of many sorts and networks and organizations of many sorts. It can't be run horizontally. There's too much frictional energy spent in self-maintenance. It would expedite disparate spin-off projects, some of which could plausibly culminate in victories within a few years. A network might include, for example, the Robin Hood tax campaign led by the National Nurses United Union, one of the more committed unions at work for serious financial reform. Here they are very early in the game at one of those big demonstrations. They already had printed up their signs. This tax would load a trading surcharge onto the biggest, uh, fastest investor speculators, a proposal, as you know, with much support in Europe. There might be, as well, a push for an updated law to separate commercial from investment banking and break up the banks that, being too big to fail, are no doubt too big to exist. There could be state initiatives for full public financing of elections, Um, I'm encouraged by the fact that in the not very populous state of Maine, adult population one million, there is a 32,000-member organization called the Maine People's Alliance with a paid staff of 39 people who are running a campaign for free higher education, government job creation, and shored up health care for the poor. There might conceivably be agreement across state lines on a common program. The precedent might be your own 19th century Chartist movement. What is plain is that Occupy's predicament endures. This is the classic predicament of prophetic radicals in a society whose institutions pay off enough people well enough to keep them satisfied with their everyday satisfactions and disaffiliated from a movement that might continue to shift the social dynamic over a long haul. In any case, networks of charters, of, networks of organizers at work over time will not spring into existence spontaneously, and neither will a charter. Neither will alliances committed to overcoming internal, internal weaknesses and jurisdictional disputes. 
There are not yet, anyway, clear signs of a full-spectrum or full-service movement that affords space for full-time activists who want nonviolent disobedience or broad-gauge debt refusal, but also for larger and wider circles of people who roll up their sleeves and perform the requisite chores, sign a petition, work for a candidate, lobby for a bill, and turn out to elect politicians who can be moved, who can help by securing the movement more space to grow and a structure of feeling that is serious about the prospect of tangible successes. The moral upheaval that Occupy invoked is still more notional than actual. It cannot be the exclusive property of the minority, a subculture, you can call it, who hunger for the politics of the streets. There are not enough saints. None of the great movement accomplishments of the last half century, not civil rights, not anti-Vietnam War, not feminist, not lesbian, gay, were movements of saints. Once again, a sustained majority-backed movement is possible, one that feels, thinks, plans, judges, tries things, assesses results, sizes up who might join and what adversaries are up to, that learns. A community, in other words, that consults upon the common good. A movement that picks itself up when it falls on its face and, in the words of a civil rights anthem, keeps its eyes on the prize. Thanks very much. And for a response, please welcome Professor Craig Calhoun. Let me respond, first of all, by thanking Todd for that presentation, which was uh, informative and interesting and I think speaks at once to a broad public commitment and to key issues in sociology. I don't really disagree, but I'm going to respond by accenting a few of Todd's points and a few different points in thinking about Occupy and its predicament. The first is to give a considerably greater weight than at least in the talk, I don't know about the book, Todd gives to international influences and parallels. There was a very short reference in Todd's oral remarks uh, to the prior, prior movements that had organized in particularly Tahrir Square in Cairo, in Syntagma Square in Athens, I would add, in Paz del Sol in Madrid and so forth. I'd say these deserve a bigger part of the story and that the Occupy story isn't as well narrated when it becomes uh, too much an interior U.S. story. Um, There's the issue of Canadian organizers at the beginning of the movement, but even more, there's the role that Todd rightly stresses of the anti-corporate globalization movement on a large scale, but the very specific role of those other occupations that preceded this one in Cairo, in Athens, in Madrid, But before that, years earlier in Prague and in Beijing, and I would stress here the point of the role of visual imagery 
and the extent to which the mobilization is made possible by the circulating image of the occupation of central public places and the way in which each occupation, including that in Zuccotti Park in New York, takes an additional kind of weight and importance from the reinforcement that is offered by the global chain of occupations to each other. Issues were partly different, partly similar in these various movements, but there was a coincidence of a kind of visual imagery and a media representation that I think added to the weight of the movement as well as produced a very specific jumping off point for this instance of a larger pattern. I want to call attention briefly to something that Todd stressed rightly and well, which is occupation itself as a tactic, as a medium of acting, and almost as a desired state of being, at least temporarily, the ideal achieved. And this was something that I think is profoundly important in the wave of movements that I mentioned, including Occupy, but not only Occupy, something that is powerful in its capacity to represent the people. The people at large represented as the people concretely assembled in a particular place, some of the power in each of those. Something that had other advantages as a tactic. That is, that it provided a specific center to a movement that in other ways denied having centers. It was a place of meeting, a place where people come together across a variety of different initial goals, a different mobilizing networks, and so forth. So the very physical place mattered. It provided a setting for a number of ritual innovations. The human megaphone, repeating the messages, especially once literal electronic megaphones were forbidden. And a set of connections to be made among different kind of people. It provided the meeting point between the inner and the outer movement, as Todd described them. That is, the place where people who were not a part of any of the core organizing networks could come to meet, potentially to get mobilized, to feel a part of this. Overall, I think occupation is a brilliantly powerful tactic, but it has some limits. Todd stressed one of them, rightly, I think, which is the vulnerability of the movement after the occupation is disbanded, that it's heavily, heavily dependent on an inevitably transitory organizational structure. There's also something that is potentially fragile in the very representation of the people. Occupation as a strategy always encourages the notion of that a larger part of the overall population has engaged and joined in the movement. This was true in Beijing in 1989. It was true in Tahrir Square. It was true in Occupy. That the very sense of the crowd, the participation in the hugeness of the occupying moment tends to blind people to some extent to the extent to which they haven't mobilized a majority but have mobilized a very significant minority of a larger population and then face challenges in any future effort to make this effective in politics. Behind part of the occupation and part of its attraction, as Todd notes, is an issue of urban public space and who owns or controls it. And I just want to call attention to this as a bigger issue, that one of the things thematized by 
the Occupy movements, and I would include the Occupy movement here in London and Occupy around many, many places, was this very issue of public space, of the places for protest, the places for discussion, the places for being a public, being taken away in many ways from people. So an issue for the movement, not contradictory to the 1% to the 99%, overlapping it but not identical to it, is the very importance of public space itself. As Todd mentioned, Zuccotti Park is symbolically significant as privately owned public space. There's public space that is created as a quasi-park as part of a larger real estate deal that requires a certain amount of space and setback from developers building high-rise office buildings. There is a version of a public space created, but not very public, not only privately owned, but only accessible generally for certain kinds of activities and not for assembly. Well, this becomes significant in and of itself. The theme of order and disorder becomes a potent theme in all of this, and it plays out in college campuses. Todd showed the footage from UC Davis, from the University of California at Davis, where pepper spray was used um, sort of egregiously against student protesters. But it plays out at Harvard. It plays out in a variety of settings. And we see a predicament here, a predicament of mayors, of university presidents, and of others who feel themselves charged with order, keeping order, charged with delivering services so that there is a provision of various kinds of goods, sanitation in the case of cities, um, easy access to buildings in the case of universities, and so forth. And this has a complicated um, story to it. I think the main story we should note is the disappearance of a lot of public space and the securitization of a lot of public space. In London, as much as in New York, there are cameras on every street corner. There are policemen all around. There is a general forbidding of access to public space. So one of the issues being well dramatized is the extent to which space is being taken away from the public. Parks are guarded spaces. Some of that is for reasons that are not simply the government's choice, but issues of certain kinds of crime and so forth. But it nonetheless has the effect of, of um, making what were public spaces off limits, literally developing some of them as private property. But it also has another more problematic subtext, which is that many of the people who wind up engaging in repressive action are not Wall Street and are not the far right wing. They are the complicit liberals. And so it's a movement strategy that pits the movement against, if not potential friends, people who are potential moderates in its campaign. So the president of Harvard, Drew Faust, is not a Wall Street tycoon when she orders the police into Harvard Square. And her actions are, in a way, a version of being trapped here. She's got a board of directors. She's got faculty who want endowed chairs. She's got students who want scholarship money. She's got a variety of contending constituents. And she has this event. Now, I think she made the wrong call. And I think, in general, one of the things that we see here is a variety of the people who represent institutions potentially relatively close to the Occupy movement making the wrong call. Right, making the call for security and a certain version of order rather than the potential public access. But we also see the movement forcing the hands in various ways of the heads of these institutions and also of urban mayors 
for the most part, the urban mayors who called for action against Occupy were not Mayor Bloomberg of New York. They were liberal Democratic mayors. They were black mayors of American cities. Um, They were some of the more progressive mayors. In Oakland, the mayor who calls for removing Occupy is one of the most progressive mayors in the country. And so the movement chose a tactic which pitted itself, which drove a wedge between itself and some potential allies, and that's a concern. Todd rightly notes the role of the police in making the media, and given the time, I'm not going to go on to that, police in making the movement in a sort of alliance with the media, a sort of accidental right, movement. I just want to make a couple of quick points about that. We saw this and a version of this in London, in the riots, and in various other settings. It's not just a matter of police action, which is con- conflict aggravating. It's a matter, in this case, of police action, which lends itself to reinforcing the very accusation that is being leveled against the state, right? The way in which the public spaces are being made off limits, the way in which the people are being prevented from assembling of the people, the way in which arbitrary violence is being used. So the police play an odd role in this. And one of the questions that I've never fully figured out about Occupy in New York, though, like Todd, I was there and was visiting the encampment and so forth, is how conscious the police were that their choice of tactics was going to play out in this way. How much this was an accident, how much this was expressive action, police who are angry, and how much this was conscious. And I think more than a little conscious. I think it's not just accident. I think that to a considerable extent, there is an intention, uh, intentional move to push this to a bit more confrontation on the part of the police. The um, officers in white in one of Todd's pictures are precisely officers. They are senior police officials. They are not the ordinary beat patrolmen who are in uniforms. They're wearing white shirts. They're off-duty. They're being brought back in, um, uh, as it were, plain clothes to be able to engage in this. This is more tactical than we might recognize. Let me make just a couple of comments about how to understand the orientation of the movement. Again, complementing, I think, what Todd offered, not in any sense contradicting it. And here, just think for all of this, of the difficulty of reconciling what this was for the inner movement, the core, as Todd talks about it, and what it was for the larger group. Because there is no one answer in either case. That is, the inner group, the core, wasn't a core in consensus about everything in Occupy or Occupation. It was a core in alliance to carry this out, a core in cooperation, but a core with different agendas and different priorities. Is it fracking that is the issue? Is it wages at Walmart? Is it the global corporate um, capitalist structure? Right? There are a series of different doors into what it was agreed was a dangerous sort of complex of popular wishes being ignored, but not a real unanimity even there, and still less with the broader outer movement, as Tall calls it. One issue in this is clearly growing attention to inequality. I completely agree about the point being made. I stress even more the extent to which this wasn't just inequality in general, but new extremes of inequality since the 1970s, something that has happened around the developed world entirely, and something not just linked to capitalism in general, but to a financial boom. Part of what was interesting about Occupy Wall Street was that it found its target 
rather more clearly, even though it was constantly accused of not having thought very clearly about strategy in this sense. That is, its target wasn't the U.S. government for the most part. And one of the issues for movements in a number of European countries, in Spain, in Portugal, in Greece, and so forth, is an ambivalence and a confusion about whether the target is the government or is, in fact, global corporate capitalism. And the extent to which the movements have found themselves attacking national targets out of anger over an international problem that is being faced in their countries, which has been a tension. I think in this Occupy Wall Street um, was interesting because finally, for the first time after the financial crisis, there was a movement that rightly targeted the financial apparatus in many ways as central to this crisis and this problem. But it was more than just income. Income had been dramatized already in the Hurricane Katrina moment, for Americans will recall that this was really a first moment when income inequality began to be back on the, in the newspapers and on the front page. This was extended as a critique, but it wasn't the whole movement, as the 99% versus the 1% slogan was so brilliant that, among other things, it almost swallowed the movement. It eclipsed a variety of other issues and concerns and made this seem simply an anti-inequality movement. But it was also a movement that had a variety of different expressive causes, as I alluded to earlier, a variety of different things that moved people to passion, and that had a democratic impulse to include rather than to prioritize. The version of democracy that was at play was a version of including all claims and all claimants, not a version of trying to prioritize which claims should come first in line for attention. And therefore, not specifically and only about inequality. If there was something common, in addition to the concern about inequality, I think in an important sense it was a demand to be participants, not excluded, a demand in common with other movements for dignity, a demand offered in indignation, but to participation, to be a part of what was going on, um, to be full members and not on the margins. Todd points to the importance of Enlightenment traditions, I think rightly, and there's much to this. His many points about assembly and the importance of freedom of assembly are key. I would note that the Enlightenment heritage also placed an emphasis on rational debate, on the print media. And so the 18th century roots from which Todd pulls out correctly the theme of freedom of assembly are also roots that were intensely written and printed. This was the Federalist Papers. This was any number of anonymous letters to newspapers. This was a print-mediated public sphere in many ways. And the Enlightenment was very tied to that. The Occupy movement also reflects a lot of romanticism and expressive individualism, a lot of ideas that this is not just about rational argument. It is about individuals expressing what is important to them, expressing directly their passions and concerns. And it reflects a populist tradition in general, in particular, as it's been interwoven with a, an American revolutionary tradition, a tradition of invoking the people as the moral locus of authority in society, which is not precisely an enlightenment evocation of truth or reason as the moral locus of authority. It did target capitalism as such, and finance capitalism in particular. This was important, but that also proved to be 
an organizational challenge because it immediately raised a set of questions about the particular analysis and set of alternatives and how this would scale up. So on the one hand, the 1%, 99%, the challenge to capitalism, the challenge to banks was immediately compelling and powerful. But on the other hand, it immediately raised a set of analytic questions. This was not a Marxist movement for the most part, though there were Marxists involved. It was a movement of refusal of something thought horrid more than it was a movement of advocacy for a particular solution, partly because there were a lot of different solutions on offer. There were people who thought that a cooperative movement of barter and alternative economies could grow to become a dominant way of organizing economic life. There were people who thought we still had to have large corporations, but what we needed was shareholder activism to change the way those corporations worked. There were people who thought what we needed was government regulation, which would have to be very big government regulation to deal with the big corporations. There, were, there was, I think, a decision to avoid the issue of the scalable alternative, partly in reflection of the very different groups that were being included and in recognition of the extent to which having the debate about exactly which would be the scalable alternative was at odds with being, to be in, being able to be fully inclusive, and that that was a primary value in this. There was a resistance to electoral politics, a major theme in the last part of Todd's talk, and rightly so, an emphasis on networks versus organizations, a real, uh, Todd, I think, said phobia in many ways about a kind of organizational structure. So things like the trade union movement, political parties, all of these look just as bad almost as the banks and uh, um, the uh, large organizations of that kind. We had a confederation of many small, expressive, many small groups of expressive advocates, competing claims to represent, and a real failure to build available alliances. There were moments like the Occupy the Port movement outside Seattle, right? So moments where the, the Occupy movement, acting a sort of conviction in its own direct immediate passions, would choose tactics directly hostile to trade unions and the trade union movement. Um, so instead of being able to make alliance and collaboration with the trade union movement out of a failure to consult, would do things like put workers already suffering in the financial crisis out of work for the period of time of an occupation um, without any particular care for thinking through what the impact would be. So it was a movement that on the one hand wanted to embrace but on the other hand, resisted the organizational structures of alliance building, which are so basic, I think, to longer-term effective movements. I have to say there's also a problem with a too-diffuse slogan, and the 1% and the 99%, a truly brilliant slogan and move in most ways, in my opinion, could be too diffuse. I have to report an LSE moment in this um, even before I had become director of the LSE, while I was visiting as director-designate, I found myself hosting a lunch with Hank Paulson, um, Henry Paulson, the former head of Goldman Sachs, former U.S. Treasury Secretary. There was a lot of discussion. He had just been in Europe meeting with Mario Draghi. He'd been talking about the euro. People were talking about the various issues. Near the end of the discussion, an LSE economics professor said, this has all been very interesting. What else is on your mind, Secretary Paulson? And he said, you know, I don't know where it comes from, but I'm really worried by this issue of the 1% and the 99%. <laughs> now, we were all too polite to say, you mean you're worried that the 1% doesn't get enough? Um, <laughs> 
But there's an issue in that. He didn't mean that. He really meant he was worried by intensified inequality, but it was not clear where that was going to take him. Um, and it's an issue, right, when you have a slogan that is so far ahead of some of the analytic structures that it can be appropriated that readily in other directions. Let me close just with a couple of comments. Todd, I think, has hit the nail on the head. There will not, in my opinion, be a direct continuation, expansion, and revival of Occupy 1.0. To use his language for talking about that's very unlikely. Questions about Occupy 2.0 are important, and they're important for precisely Occupy reasons. So Todd mostly said another movement might be built on the platform left by Occupy, and I think that's an option. But I think it's also important to consider the possibility that much of what was most vital about Occupy, much of what brings us out to think about it now, was an extraordinary capacity to invent, to innovate. And the brilliant innovation may not be the basis for organization building, but there may well be a next brilliant innovation. I think trying to reignite the previous brilliant innovation is almost contrary to the spirit. It's the next set of new tactics, the next set of new appeals to the media, the next set of new ways to dramatize this. Because Occupy really in many ways was a dramatic performance calling attention to a set of issues that it put into the public discussion more than it was part of an organization-building effort designed either to win elections or to carry out direct economic action in a trade union or other model. So one kind of future is building a new movement that may have more of those organizational strengths. But another kind of next step is the next moment of inspired innovation that is able to capture public um, imagination only temporarily but with a longer impact on the culture and on the way people think about what is possible. Thank you. Okay, in, in, the, in the spirit of permitting you all to insert yourselves into this, I'll, I'm going to be breathtakingly brief. Um, Movements are messy, and um, so are assemblies. I, I was fascinated to discover that in lower Manhattan, the stretch of land that's called the Bowling Green, which was originally a Bowling Green, uh, was also the site of a, an equestrian statue mounted of your own George III, and it was rudely torn down and disposed of in, in 1776. Um, the, such things happen in public assemblies. And part of what is difficult is, apropos Craig's point about the Enlightenment, part of what those of us who have experience in these movements know that they get messy and sloppy and that Habermasian rational discourse is at a premium. Uh, which is not to say that one should not always strive for it, but to say that it goes with the territory that this is going to be messy. Um, so many, I think, misjudgments were made about which had the effect, as Craig says, of driving wedges uh, between, for example, unions in Oakland and, uh, and anarchists in the encampment in Oakland. Um, but 
this is why organizers are always at a premium and must always be, you know, are indispensable. Organizers are not mobilizers of people who convene large assemblies. They are people who actually are extremely shrewd uh, strategists and allocators of energy and and uh, inventors of of tactic and. Um, Movements are an important way. If they're not initially sparked by such people, they don't go anywhere without them. And we know very well how well such people, the, the best of them, functioned in the 1960s and how much they accomplished. Um, on, the, on the dangers of wedges, this is, again, such an old, which is not to say unimportant, it's to say actually all-important phenomenon. I remember well in 1968 being at a demonstration in Berkeley uh, and when the police arrived to read the riot act which in California takes the form of reading a statement that says in the name of the people of the state of California and so in a, whereupon as you can well imagine the crowd is yelling we are the people and I found myself at this moment wondering well if we are the people out here blocking traffic who are those other people out there who are, in fact, the traffic, among other things. Uh, and the movement that can't, the movement that becomes inflated, as Craig suggested, with its own uh, omnipresence and, in fact, universality, is just, uh, an, an, is indulged in another form of collective narcissism, which is an impediment to uh, moving things on. And let me just say one other word about universities here. Um, Universities are in default um, as a presence in society, at least in my country. Um, they do not, in general, stand for public value. Um, they do not. They are, as I suggested, they're 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 on they're on the take, and um, so it happens that I find it shocking uh, that after an entire school of economic thought has been proved to be. Uh, a, a phantasmagorical misassessment of the world, that this school of thought is still the dominant school of thought in universities. It seems to me that universities ought to be involved in, if you'll pardon the reference, truth and reconciliation commissions, where we explore actually the part played... <laughs> the, 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 the part played by our bad thinkers in uh, generating the bad thought that brought the world to its knees. And I, I await the universities rising to that occasion. I think I'll just leave it there. <laughs> well, let's, let's hear from you. Well, we're running, we're running almost scarily to time, so we have time for two or three questions. Yes. Do we have a mic? We have a mic. Yeah, we have a mic. Yeah, so we, we have people here. to bring the mic around. There yeah, we go. We, we do. Uh, yes, hello. I just want to ask you how the U.S. democracy works while the 1% are the ones who found the politicians, the candidates. If you can, like, just... We, we have an absurd situation. A plutocracy now is just about a literal terminology for it. There, there are several billion dollars being spent on our election this year. It's, it is an obscenity beyond obscenity. And uh, you cannot, you, we have a semi-democracy. 
It has some residually democratic institutions, and it enables people like Sheldon Adelson, one of the richest men in the world, to actually by himself exert enormous force. Uh, the Koch brothers, much written about and deservedly, are funders of the Tea Party. They are funders of, 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 of Paul Ryan and people like Paul Ryan. They are extremely powerful people. And in part, what they're protecting is ideological. And in part, what they're protecting is their bank, is their, is, are their, their offshore funds. Um, so it, 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 for this reason, I think is absolutely essential in the next phase that, uh, and, and I'm by no means the only person who thinks this, that there be a direct uh, attack on the, uh, on the hold that private funds have on our politics. And there are a whole series, there are many questions about how to, what the core of that alliance should be, what the positions should be, and should, is it conceivable? Should you spend 10 years campaigning for a constitutional amendment, which is probably what it would take, because we have an, one, of the, one, of the, one of the, one thing we got from having the first democratic revolution was the most rickety constitution that's, that's uh, in many ways uh, intended to block such radical transformations. But to me, such moves are absolutely essential. Yes, right back here. Uh, if we could rewind the clock, what would your advice be to the organizers of the Occupy movement have been in terms of their aims and their actions? I'm sorry, I missed the, the beginning of it. If we could rewind you, you the, could clock. Rewind oh, the uh, clock. Well, you never rewind. I, I, I don't... Oh. <laughs> um, Look, I, I, I was one, you know, let me fess up here. When, when the demandlessness of the movement became palpable and certainly was featured in the press, I was one of these old-fashioned people who said, well, of course, this is a big mistake and so on. That was, mis that was a misjudgment. In fact, it was an inadvertent work of genius not to insist on demands for a reason that didn't occur to me yet. The reason was that had the movement stopped to try to consider what its agreed-upon demands would be, it would have been immediately uh, a free-for-all, a war of all against all, a war of all policies against all other policies. I think that you know, my sense, if you'll pardon the word dialectical, is that dialectically it began as it had to begin. But that doesn't mean it can continue the way it was launched. And so now I think is the time for people who can agree upon a program, uh, some of which is achievable and some of which is achievable within you know, a certain number of years, uh, should need to step up. And I don't want to take the, go into detail. There, there are a considerable number of people who think this way. Uh, but I, the clock is never rewound, and partly what happens because the clock went haywire or, or did what it did at certain moments is that people enter into an educational process. I mean, to me, that was part of, if we were to talk more about the, 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 the achievement of the movement, and I, I tried to do it a bit in the book, there, this was a, a John Deweyan exercise in collective education at its best. There were a lot of stupid things. But partly what happened was that you had this, a critical mass of people who were actually 
you know, not only doing and being, but also learning. So as long as people submit to the discipline of learning, then I think um, movements have a life. The movement, the civil rights movement encountered many such periods when it, it seemed to have disappeared. It seemed to have failed. Uh, Martin Luther King was desperate after they, they, they converged the Southern Christian Leadership Conference in 1961 thought that they picked an ideal city, a kind of a kind of model town to transform, and they they had to cope with a sheriff who outfoxed them, threw them all in jail. They got nowhere. King was in dis- was in despair, and it was then that they decided that the proper proscenium to operate on was Birmingham, Alabama, where we had. Bill Connor and his police dogs and his fire hoses. Um, they were always coming back from the dead. So uh, learning, learning. Okay. We have time for just one more question. Let's take this one here and then we'll carry on. You, 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 you're here? Thanks. Um, the financial systems are definitely the root cause of the problem in terms of the way it is globally. We all understand that, right? And it's largely because they're so interlinked. But um, what I want to ask is governments are the ones that legislate and it's the governments that are the ones that deregulate. And therefore, as a movement, whether it's Occupy or something that builds itself on the platform of Occupy, it should, should not just be looking at the financial systems. It should surely be looking at the governments that are being funded by these corporations. Um, what is your view on that? Well... For sure. And uh, this is why, for example, it's important to drive money out of politics and to create pub- a system of public financing. It's why it's important to, uh, to repair the, the, the tax system so that capital gains are taxed at the same rate as income. So, so we don't have a situation which Mitt Romney pays 14 percent of his, uh, of, of his uh, income, known income anyway, in taxes. Um, there need to be measures that, that, as I mentioned just quickly in passing, to separate, as, as was the case before, to separate commercial banking from investment banking so you don't have Barclays Bank and Libor and these, um, this stupendous operation that, uh, by the way, Mr. Diamond, the recently deposed head of, of Barclays Bank, um, is the chairman of the board of trustees of Colby College in Maine, where I spoke a few weeks ago. He was, there was a demonstration against him. These, you know, it's not, uh, it's not wrong to speak of a sort of educational financial complex at work here. Um, so I think that you know, I, I'm not a, a, a wizard of, of regulatory policy, but there are people, there is actually one of the more interesting spin-offs of the Occupy movement is something called Occupy the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, which included a number of very proficient financial types who uh, have a reform program that uh, I'm told is, is intellectually respectable. Um, so insofar as the government is, the, is, a, is an expediting entity, or, or parts of it are, um, it must be the, the target of, uh, of, of change, not just protest, but change. And that's where I come back to the misfortune of having declared in advance, as so much of the core of the movement did, that the government is, in fact, the 
enemy, that the political class is unified. If, if, if you define the, the government as a monolith, then you are bound for failure. Um, and and I mean, let me just conclude that by saying that when I speak of failure, here's an existential problem, is an existential predicament. I, uh, a, few, a couple of months ago, I was invited to participate in a panel discussion on this uh, at a museum in New York. And we were having a conference call about how to structure the panel. And I suggested at one point, after we'd gone around with some Merck, that we could start with a discussion of what the Occupy movement had accomplished in the last year and then move to a discussion of what, what it ought to accomplish in the next year. And one of the uh, young activists who was on the phone, who I didn't know at that point, said, that's a very unoccupied way of putting it. And he was correct. That is to say, the subject of accomplishment was not really of interest to him. But you see, that spells the, the, the self-encapsulation of the movement. And it's that that I think we need to tra transcend. Read about it in the March issue of the BJS. Please join me in thanking tonight's speakers, and please join us for reception. <laughs>